Homer, the Wall Street genius! Yeah! yeah. Hey, Homer, how come you got money to burn? Or singe, anyway. Yeah, Homer, what's your secret investment? Take a guess. Uh, pumpkins? Yeah, that's right, Barney. This year I invested in pumpkins. They've been going up the whole month of October. And I got a feeling they're going to peak right around January. And bang! That's when I'll cash in. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's The Stacking Benjamin Show. Gather round, kids, because today, Uncle Doug and the team are going to share just how a miracle was made. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the index fund. You might be surprised by the people who led to its rise and also by who wasn't as instrumental as you would have originally thought. To tell us all about it, we welcome Financial Times global finance correspondent, Robin Wigglesworth. Plus, more bad news about one Achilles heel in your financial plan. We'll share during our headline segment. Later, we'll toss out the Haven Lifeline to Jason, who has a question about what he should do with some jingle rolling around in his business account. And I'll also chip in with some index fund-related trivia. And now, two guys who have been pretty passive about investing for decades, it's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. Investing, is that a thing? Is that a fad? Is that like crypto? Don't know that we need any of that. Uh, I don't know. My, my crypto is like investing lately. Just goes up and up and up. That's all it does, isn't it? Yeah. Hey, everybody. Welcome to uh, Short-Term Results Equal Cha-Ching Podcast. That's not very good. I'm Joe Salci. I have Joe Money on Twitter. And we've got a great... We don't got a good show. We've got a great show because Financial Times journalist, as Doug just mentioned, Robin Rigglesworth coming here, and he's going to lay it all down. If you think you know how the exchange traded fund and the index fund came to be, I will tell you, OG, you're probably mistaken. Can't wait to hear. It's a great history lesson for us all. Of course, if you don't even know how these products work, it's going to be pretty exciting for you too. We've got some fantastic headlines. What a, what a Wednesday. We're just lighting up people's week. Just packing it in. I know. It, people went from walking with their device to all of a sudden skipping down the road, I'm sure, with a big smile on their face. Headlines, Robin Rigglesworth, the Exchange Traded Fund, the Index Fund, Haven Lifeline. Let's get this party started. Oh, but but first we, yes, of course. This episode sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. 
When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We're talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Okay, now we can get the party started. You ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. You're ready. I'm ready. Press the button. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show. Our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Our headline today comes to us from Investment News. And uh, this is written by Mary Beth Franklin, who we have talked to Mary Beth Franklin about coming on the show, I think about 16 times. And for some reason, we're like ships passing in the night. But Mary Beth knows what she's writing. And in fact, uh, this is ugly. She begins this piece by saying, I've been writing about long-term care issues for about 40 years, and I don't think I've ever written a positive news story on the topic. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tough, uh, 40 years. tough dealio. She says, this one is no exception. It's frustrating because the possibility of needing care later in life is a real concern for retirees, their families, and their financial advisors, particularly as traditional protections such as standalone long-term care insurance becomes a dwindling option for all but the healthiest and wealthiest of clients. I haven't thought about it that way. Healthiest and wealthiest. I think that's true. Long-term care insurance, just so difficult to put that in a financial plan now. It's very expensive. Many retirees worry whether they can get the care they may need one day without exhausting their financial resources and their family caregivers. Fear dependency makes some retirees reluctant to spend down their 401k balances, depriving them of a more comfortable retirement. People hanging on to money, OG, because they're worried about the long-term care stay. Well, that's the trade-off, right? The trade-off is, do I transfer some of this risk by paying a premium that I don't get much back for, if anything? And, And in order to get something back for, I have to actually hope for a long-term care stay. Although maybe, maybe that's not the worst thing. Maybe we have to think of it the other way. Maybe we have to think of assisted care as a good thing. You know, we think about it like the rundown nursing home, you know, like in Billy Madison where, or happy Gilmore, you know, where the senior citizens yeah. are being abused and all that. And you hear about those stories, you know, I was thinking about my grandparents. They, they lived in a great place and that's what they needed at that time. They needed to have somebody, who could say, hey, it's time for dinner. You know, that grandma didn't have to cook anymore. That was the next step in their life. So maybe if we think of it from the perspective of it's a the evolution, a transition, and it's a good thing, maybe we'll think of it differently. It's funny you say that, that, that the way people view this uh, coverage and this late in life care is 
different than the way that it really looks. In fact, this is a health insurance newsletter from insurancenewsnet.com. Many individuals mistakenly believe that most long-term care insurance claims are for in-skilled nursing facilities. Jesse Sloan, director of long-term care insurance organization. Men, most care is actually provided in the policyholder's home, which is where they prefer to be. A lot of people yeah. use this coverage at their house. If they get the coverage, that's where they use it. Well, again, that's like an evolution, right? You start out in your home, and that's where you would prefer to have care if possible. And that care starts out by being some infrequent visit. Like it's somebody who shows up twice a week to just make sure everything's okay, right? It's not always necessarily the hospice care. When you think about like long-term care and you think like, well, you know, that's not fun. But like when you're 87, it might be a good idea to have somebody stop by and make sure you're doing okay and taking your pills and, you know, dropping off groceries and that sort of stuff. Dropping off the six pack, the Schlitz. I'm not going to slim it on Schlitz when I'm 87, brother. <laughs> That's the real way you're spending down the kids' inheritance, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Finally get to crack those 2011, 2012 bottles of Cabernet that have been sitting in the wine fridge. A couple statistics we've had for a long time. One is that uh, almost one third of home care claimants recover. A lot of people think that once you start this process, you're not recovering. Okay. But one third of the people that that actually want their money, it's because they want it paid for, but they want to use it, of course, for other stuff afterwards. That was much bigger number than I thought. And then a second number that I didn't know anything about. This is from the Center for Retirement Research at Boston College. About 20% of retirees will escape the need for long-term care services. This is why this is so expensive, OG. One in five people won't need it. Oh, you mean one in five won't need it, not one in five will use it and then stop using it. No, no. One in five people are not going to need, no wonder it's so expensive. Four in five of us are going to need it. (laughs) I was like, that's a funny way of saying four in five people do. And it says that 25% of people are likely to experience the type of severe need that most people dread, right? That, That extended stay. Well, yeah. And when you think about insurance, it's it's all based on probability. It's probability and magnitude. It's the likelihood of it happening. And this is both. And the cost if it does. So you've got a high cost of it happening or high likelihood of it happening and a high cost of it occurrence if it does happen. So that's going to turn into a pretty a pretty decent premium. Does she talk at all about some of the other stuff that's coming up, like in terms of the linked benefits stuff, where it's kind of combined with life insurance and kind of the next evolution of this of this product? No, she doesn't get into that specifically, but she does say that uh, few are prepared to cover these costs. Only 11% of adults over 65 have long-term care insurance. Medicare covers only post-hospital nursing home care for up to 100 days and generally doesn't cover home care. Uh, Medicaid does cover nursing homes, and some states offer home care coverage to their Medicaid programs, but Medicaid requires that people exhaust their assets to qualify for benefits. So she, she doesn't talk about directly confronting this, which is my next question to you. What do you, what do, you do here? We've got, we got a big uh, Achilles heel in our financial plan. Well, you can't just bury your head. So the do-nothing plan doesn't necessarily work out very well. But I think you have to start exploring it. You know, we're seeing some, some states. Uh, I totally disagree with this, by the way. But... Um, State of Washington just just uh, launched a program this year, and 
I think you're past the deadline now. I thought it was October 1st, but now you are required to pay a tax and that tax is for your long-term care. And it's a terrible program and it doesn't provide hardly any benefits. It's like 35,000 or something. And the tax is like 60, six tenths of a percent, I think, somewhere in that range of your income. So states are starting to get involved in this, right? They're starting to like go, we have to start trying to solve this problem on our own because people aren't doing it for themselves. I think that somewhere in your 50s and 60s, late 50s is probably the time that you have to start considering it. If you have good money and good savings, there's an opportunity to prepay all of this ahead of time, like while you're in your earning years. So you don't have to worry about having a a high premium payment while you're uh, throughout retirement. But you know, when you're talking about long-term care premiums, that could be three or $4,000 a year a person, you know, that's taking away money from your savings. So back to what she said here in this, uh, in this piece, it's kind of sort of for people who are already wealthy. So like, where do you draw the line? Yeah, there's no easy answer here, but this is definitely something that uh, if it's not on your radar, you need a strategy. And unfortunately, I think that no matter what your strategy is, there's not going to be, there's not going to be one that's not ugly. Not a free strategy, that's for sure. No. All right, Robin Wigglesworth on his way down to the basement. He's a fantastic Financial Times writer. He has a new book out called Trillions, where he talks about how the index fund was created. And it is a fascinating ride and a bunch of stuff that I didn't know. And you're about to hear some of the things that that, that I learned. I get to ask him a bunch of questions now in just a few minutes. But we got Doug here, who I think might have a little, uh, little rain of his own. Doug? Stackers, I am noted passivity expert and fantasy football loser, Joe's mom's neighbor Doug, and with a big celebrity like Robin Rigglesworth coming to visit, it's really got me thinking that I need to be a better investor myself. My investments in IBM, Kmart, and JCPenney aren't exactly panning out the way I'd hoped, so I think it's time to just invest in the market. I mean, like the whole market. Speaking of investing in the whole market, what was Vanguard's first fund, which is still a fund you can invest in today? I'll be back with your answer faster than you can set it and forget it with your investments. Well, stackers, if you pay off your credit cards every month like you should, Navy Federal Credit Union likes to reward their members when they responsibly use their credit cards. OG, oh, you know getting those points on the credit card. If you pay off your credit card every month, why, why wouldn't you do it? No shame in my credit card point game. No shame in my game either. You know that. <laughs> you can also earn up to 1.75% cash back in all purchases with their cash rewards card when you sign up for direct deposit. When you use the Navy Federal mobile app, you can redeem your rewards as soon as you earn them. And there's no annual balance transfer foreign transaction fees. Plus, Different than a lot of cards, your rewards never expire. Learn more at NavyFederal.org. That's NavyFederal.org, insured by NCUA. Well, now you got your to-do list, don't you? You're ready to go dive in and be better at money than you were an hour ago when you started listening to the show. And you know what? For a great partner, become a member at Navy Federal Credit Union because... Becoming a member at Navy Federal could help you earn more and save more. Their certificate options could earn you more than standard savings accounts with competitive rates. 
Not all financial institutions offer you as many choices for savings options as Navy Federal does. For example, you could start your savings journey with a low minimum deposit, add money at any time, and watch your savings grow. Thanks to flexible terms, you can use Navy Federal savings options for all kinds of goals, short or long term. Considering a big home improvement project, maybe you want to consolidate debt. Well, when you're thinking about debt, as I've said before, a lot of people have debt. Very few people have a debt strategy. Well, with Navy Federal, you could borrow up to 100% of your home equity with a fixed rate home equity loan with zero closing cost or easily borrow as you go with a home equity line of credit. Make the plan. Choose the best option because both options could help make life's big expenses seem more manageable. To learn more, visit NavyFederal.org. At Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equal housing lender, membership required, terms and conditions apply, loan subject to approval. Hey, stackers, I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and as they say, if you can't beat them, join them, right? Am I right? So in an effort to be a better investor, I'm going to stop actively trading and just invest in the market. Here's the issue, though. I got my Robinhood app open, and I'm trying to buy the whole market, but there's like no way to, there's no select all button. I don't want to click on every single one of these things. It's going to take me hours. I know what the guys say about Robinhood, but I mean, how bad can it be? Let's see. No, Robinhood. No, Robinhood. I don't need these hot out of the money call options. No, I don't need the crypto wallet to buy more Dogecoin. Jeez. For an app that's named after a guy who steals from the rich to give to the poor, they got some things to work out. I'll work on that. But here's your trivia answer. The question was, what was Vanguard's first fund? Well, the Vanguard Wellington Fund, then called Industrial and Power Securities Company, opened for business months before the stock market crash in 1929. The fund endures and is today the nation's oldest balanced fund. You'll hear later that the fund was created well before the creation of Vanguard, and this fund has averaged an 8.38% average annual return since its inception. So now with that story and more, let's get this over to Joe and Robin to learn more about passive investing. And coming down the stairs to the basement, my friend Robin Rigglesworth is here. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Joe? Well, I'm, I'm fascinated by your work, my friend. And I've dug into it the last few weeks, and I'm excited to share some of just a few of the many, many, many stories that you have here in Trillions with uh, Stackers. But can we talk about you personally for a second? How did you get interested in this topic at all? What made you decide to go deep on the index fund? Well, it started off with, you know, over a decade and a half ago, I was actually a Middle East correspondent at the FT. And at the time, the, the Gulf countries were desperately trying to develop their financial markets and they were trying to launch this weird thing called ETFs. And this was 2009. I thought ETFs, that sounds a little bit like CDO and things like that, right? The financial <laughs> right. crisis just happened. So I went to this meeting just to learn a little bit. And I vaguely knew what an index fund was. And ETFs basically is a new form of index funds. And uh, there was a lady there called Debbie Fur, who's been this sort of uh, John the Baptist of index funds around the world. And she really just kind of opened my eyes to it, both the, the pros and just saying, look, this is going to become a trillion dollar industry. I was like, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, that was like, we're talking it was two, three hundred billion then at the time. And I thought that was pretty big. That's what you I was going to say at the time. At the, well, yeah, at the time, Robin, it's funny 
how quickly ETFs grew because 2009, not that long ago. I mean, the big scheme of things, that's yesterday. Exactly. No, I mean, I, I, I thought she was, you know, gone crazy in the heat in the Gulf, right? I mean, it's warm down there. Trillion dollars. That's insane. But no, I mean, she was bang on with the, with the time it would hit it. And I think, you know, nobody would have expected. And this is, you know, seven, eight trillion dollars now globally. So, yeah. yeah. Astonishing. So since then, I've just been interested. And the more and more when I started digging into the history of it, because I do love history, I just realized there were these really interesting, zany characters. And you kind of have to be to be a disruptor. And I just want to write a story about them. Let's dive in then. You start off back in the 1800s with a Frenchman who can't keep a job. Everybody seems to overlook this guy and you start with him. Tell me who the man is and, and why you trace index funds really back to him. Well, so Louis Bacalier is a classic one of those guys that nobody outside of finance and quite a lot of people in finance don't know who he is, but he's sort of a giant of mathematical financial economics. He's considered the father of financial economics. So he was a, a mathematician, a really gifted mathematician uh, who had this really checkered life. You know, his, his parents died suddenly when he was young. So he had to bought plans to study at the Sorbonne to run his father's uh, Mintner business and take care of his younger sister. Then he was finally going back to the Sorbonne to study. And then the war broke out between France and Prussia. So he got enlisted in that. Then he finally made it to Sorbonne to study mathematics under people like Henri Poincaré. And the Sorbonne is sort of the really center of mathematics in Europe, and arguably the world at the time. Sure. And he was a brilliant student, but he did a part-time job because he wasn't rich like most of the other students. He still had to support himself. So he did a job at the French Stock Exchange and thought it was really interesting. And he thought he'd write about like how the prices of financial security seemed to move around. And he wrote his PhD thesis on this. So everybody thought, oh, that's, that's pretty cool. The maths are pretty interesting. Like he, he did equations to calculate the probability and showed how stocks seem to move pretty randomly. But he didn't get a great grade. He didn't get the top grade because people thought finance was a bit grubby at the time. <laughs> like, serious mathematicians don't write about finance. I mean, get out of here. So they gave him an okay grade, which wasn't enough for him to actually get a professorship. So he bounced between jobs and the French army for the rest of his life until he died in obscurity. You also write, by the way, that part of it seems like his issue was, I mean, it sounds like there was no flair to his paper either. He was, it was deep mathematics. A lot of people barely understood what the hell he was even talking about. And he didn't really, it, it sounded like he didn't really care to, you know, put window dressing on it at all for the rest of us. No, he certainly didn't have me in mind when he was writing that paper, sadly. <laughs> so it was a bit of a slog, like a lot of mathematics papers. It's very much written for his tutors and nobody really else. But it became the wellspring from which people started to realize that stocks kind of moved randomly. And he's only discovered by random by a famous American statistician. I think he was involved in the Manhattan Project at some point. And he was nearly blind, but he randomly stumbled over his uh, PhD thesis whilst he was going through uh, his university library. And he was friends with a very famous economist called Paul Samuelson. And Paul Samuelson was like the, the granddaddy of American economics. His textbooks are still being read today. So, you know, uh, Savage, Jimmy Savage, sent this postcard to his friend Paul Samuelson. said, have you heard of this dude? And Paul Samuelson said, no, but this is incredible. And he spread the knowledge of Louis Bacalier. And in afterwards, that is the genesis of what is known as the random walk of stock market prices. So Bacalier talks about that, but then we have to start tracking things. And really, you trace a lot of tracking, I believe, to Alfred Cowles III. Yeah. 
So, I mean, I always think of this as two streams. Like one was like the realization that most investment, professional investment managers do a mediocre to bad job. And then a theory for why that is. So Louis Bekele is sort of the granddaddy of sort of the efficient markets hypothesis that you know, Gene Farmer built on. He took the random walk and built into fully-fledged theory of financial markets and markets in general. Alfred Cowles was one of the first people in the world, as far as I can see, that actually quantitatively studied how well professionals did at investing. So you got the annual reports of various fire insurance uh, companies and stock picking letters whilst he was tuberculosis ridden. So he was the heir of the, the big Chicago fortune, but he got tuberculosis, had to recuperate and started doing this almost for fun. He loved measuring stuff. He loved measuring weather, the length of sharks, uh, brown eyes, blue eyes, everything. And he just happened to be obsessed with stock market prices. So he did the first study that showed that actually professionals do a pretty bad job. Yeah. And it was funny, even during that time that he's uh, measuring and writing and he's finding out that pros do a bad job. People are railing on fees then, Robin, you point out at that point. One great one great book that you mentioned in 1940 was called something like, written by a former stockbroker, was called something like, where are the customers' yachts? Like all yeah. the stockbrokers got yachts. What, what customers have yachts? Well, there's a reason why that book is still a classic, right? I mean, I, I have it here in oh, my do you? library. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's still, first of all, it's very funnily written as well. And that phrase, where the customer's yachts, is still you know, incredibly relevant. But yeah, so that was after the Great Depression when Cowles also did his study. So, you know, in the roaring 20s, who cared like whether your fund manager did as well as the market? Because first, you were making so much money anyway, you didn't care. And second, people didn't know what the overall market was really doing. So you had things like the Dow Jones Industrial Average that was being compiled every day, but nobody knew how well it done over time. It seems weird that nobody nobody had tracked how the Dow Jones, as long as the Dow Jones had been late 1800s, right? The Dow Jones, uh, but nobody really kept track of how over years it had done. Well, the Dow Jones to a certain extent, but it only captured you know, 30 stocks sure. and mostly transport stocks. So, And it's also it's a slightly odd index. It's, it's weighted by the value of the stock, like just the dollar price of it rather than the value of the company. Uh, so there were other better indices starting to emerge, but broadly speaking, no. I mean, Merrill Lynch, after in the 50s and 60s, desperately wanted to start uh, marketing stocks to investors. And they were going to say stocks are a great long-term investment. And the Securities and Exchange Commission, the U.S. financial watchdog, said, no, hang on, you can't do that. Easy. You have to prove that stocks are a good investment. So Merrill Lynch, basically, in desperation, hired a University of Chicago professor to say, look, here's a couple of hundred thousand dollars. Go and figure out what stocks have returned in the long run. And that was Jim Laurie. And he did what was the granddaddy study of this. I want to stop right there for a second, Robin, because everybody hanging out with us listening to this you know, we have these we have these biases today that one thing is better than something else. And there were a bunch of biases back then that you point out at, which are that bonds, everybody believes because nobody's tracking it, have a higher return. Plus bonds are safer. But the part that made me laugh out loud, Robin, when I'm reading your work is people thought they were easier to understand. And now today, nobody can understand a bond. We have no idea what the hell, how the hell it works. But stocks seem like the easiest thing ever for a lot of people. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just like every bond, like every single bond is basically a unique snowflake. 
But stocks, you know, they're kind of interchangeable. Like IBM has one stock out there, but God knows how many bonds and debt securities it has out there. But back in the day, bonds, and this don't forget, this was a generation scarred by the biggest financial crisis in history at the time, the Great Depression. And obviously in that time, you know, some people would have lost money on some bonds, but broadly speaking, bonds would have done way better than stocks. So we all suffer from these recency biases. And we think now think that obviously stocks are the best thing ever and they always only go up. Whilst, you know, somebody who grew up in Russia in the 1900s would, you know, say, well, stocks went up until, you know, 1917 then, and they didn't really go anywhere for the next 100 years in the Soviet Union. So, yeah, I, I, it is the history of this is fascinating. And you kind of see sometimes echoes of present day manias or, or biases all the time. And it makes you a little bit humble about what we know and how much we know. It truly does. So back to Lori's work, really the first guy who did comprehensive tracking, and let me make sure I've got this right. Really, it was Merrill Lynch going to the University of Chicago with a bunch of money saying, we want somebody to prove that stocks are a good investment. Yeah, exactly. And they thought it would take, I think Laurie first promised it would take a few months and cost $100,000. And in the end, it took them four years. Uh, the problem is like when we say stock, actually, like back in the day, there was no agreement of what was a stock. Lots of stuff that was called a stock was actually a bond or common equity, versus some preferred equity was actually not preferred at all. So you, they had to sort out all this manual data from decades, almost a century worth of newspaper clippings sometimes. Like nobody collected this comprehensively. So in the end, this magnetic spool that they compile the data on stretch out for miles. But the results were just fabulous. And that is really like this is the genesis moment of index funds. Because that was the data, the wellspring that almost everything flowed. The idea that actually the average investor in the stock market actually does do well. Those studies showed exactly what Merrill Lynch wanted it to show. It showed that in the long run, stocks actually do really well. And even if you'd invested at the peak of the roaring 20s, just before the big crash and the Great Depression, you still would have made you know, way more money than you would in bonds. But also, and this was something that Laurie thought was hilarious, it also showed that the market did better than most investors. And this was the first rigorous, thorough study that showed it. Like, Cowles had done some stuff, but like he wasn't a trained statistician. This was irrefutable evidence that most professional fund managers did worse than the overall market. Well, how come nobody had ever tried to make an index out of the Dow Jones, even as flawed as you mentioned earlier, Robin, that it was? Or had somebody tried to make an index earlier on? Well, there was lots of talk that, you know, when somebody says, you know, or oh, you didn't beat your benchmark last year, then people say, well, you can't buy the benchmark anyway. So good luck with that. <laughs> and it also, don't forget, people just didn't know. Just the idea of like having a fund manager benchmark. You didn't know the most people would invest money with like, say, a Fidelity or a Capital Group or a Louis Dreyfus, and they'd make 5%, 20%, 9%. They just didn't know what the overall market did. And certainly in the 60s, when a lot of this stuff was happening, the 60s was a massive bull run. It was the first dot-com bubble in many ways. It was called the Nifty 50, but these like Xerox, like really hot tech stocks. IBM, this up-and-coming hot stock called IBM at the time. So fund managers piled into those. They did incredibly well. So just even when the data came out, people said, well, sure, man, that's a great story. But like my guy at Fidelity just returned 50% this year. So I'm laughing all the way to the bank. People just didn't care. It wasn't until the bear market, the end of the go-go years in the 60s, late 60s and early 70s, that people really started to revisit some of this stuff. 
That's interesting how it takes a dumb art. People losing money. All of a sudden we start getting analytical. It toughens the minds. Yeah, absolutely. On that note, portfolio construction at the same time you write, but is becoming a big thing. And on the bleeding edge of that is a gentleman named uh, Harry Markowitz. Tell me the Markowitz story. Well, he was really interesting. He was like a philosophy-loving, geeky kid from Chicago that sort of ambled into economics purely because he found philosophy interesting and was pretty good at maths. Uh, he was going to do his PhD in economics, and he just kind of ambled into that, and he had no clue what on earth to write about. He was going to his tutor to some tear his hair out, which he still had at the time, about what to write. And he, in the room outside, whilst he was waiting to see his tutor, he actually ran into a stockbroker whose name, you know, has unfortunately escaped history, but, you know, he serendipitous meeting. He said, hey, young man, you should write about stocks. Stocks are really interesting. And Harry Markowitz had no clue. But as it happened, his tutor was the head of the Cowles Commission, which Alfred Cowles has set up many decades earlier. So his tutor said to Harry Markowitz, you know, Alfred Cowles was actually kind of interested in his stocks as well. You should do something on that. But I know nothing about it. Here's a reading list. You've got to do this yourself. So Harry Markowitz went to the university library, dug out a few books, and basically suddenly had this idea, he was reading about various sort of theories of investment, that actually you should optimize your return for your risk. And obviously people kind of intuitively understood that, but he was a guy that took volatility, thought, well, risk is kind of hard to measure, but the volatility, how much something moves up and down, that's a mathematical idea. You can measure that and use that as a proxy for risk. And then that way you can basically optimize risk versus you, the volatility versus uh, the risk, uh, the volatility or the risk versus the returns. And also he realized and showed mathematically, the more stuff you put in there, as long as it moves independently, the overall risk of a portfolio drops. So if you buy, let's say, 10 stocks, but they all move exactly the same thing, the volatility goes to one. But if they all move pretty independently, then actually the overall volatility of the overall portfolio as a whole actually drops. So that way you can actually get a broader, higher returning, low volatility portfolio, in theory at least. This idea, I feel like, is still still today lost on so many investors that you should pay attention to the entire portfolio versus, and I'm doing the efficient frontier with my hand, by the way, with people, people not able to watch this audio <laughs> podcast that I'm doing the, the Harry Markowitz efficient frontier, but, but it's lost on people still today that we should look at the whole aggregate versus this one thing. No, it, it, it's kind of intuitive, but most people, you know, they want to live interesting lives. And buying a portfolio of 5,000 stocks or 500 stocks it isn't that interesting. Yeah. Or, you know, mixing bonds with equities or, or real estate and so on. So we don't think in that way, even though we intuitively understand that putting all your eggs in one basket is risky. And Marquis, I mean, don't forget, even at the time, the math was pretty kind of recondite. The computers that could actually do the calculations he was describing almost didn't exist. The only people that had those computers were the US government. They used it to model nuclear weapons. So it was entirely theoretical. I mean, Harry Markowitz almost didn't get his PhD. I thought that was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, it was uh, Milton Friedman, who was the granddaddy economist at the time at the University of Chicago's economics department, said, look, Harry, you know, the maths look great, but this isn't economics. I can't give you a PhD in economics for something that's just like cool maths. But in the end, he did get his PhD, and actually that did win him a Nobel Prize eventually as well. Following in his footsteps then, we have William Sharp, and we have a gentleman named Eugene Fama. 
And I'm wondering about proximity here as you're explaining these people, because my understanding is these people all really knew each other and work sometimes in tandem. And we talked to an expert in the area of business meets artistry who talks about great art is built on the backbone of other great artists. So it's, it's no mistaking Robin that, you know, great art comes from this one community of artists because they're all kind of working off of each other's strengths. Is that kind of what's happening here with Markowitz, Sharp, Fama, many of the others? Very much so. It's a great way of looking at it. I think it was Isaac Newton that once said that if I've seen further than others, it is only because I stood on the shoulders of giants. And that's very much what has happened in economics. So unfortunately, for a, for a writer like me, piecing together a clean narrative is always a little bit messy. Right? Sure. I mean, human relations doesn't work that well. But you can, like, all of these people knew each other and were inspired by each other. And you know, Harry Markowitz was a mentor to Bill Sharp. Bill Sharp was actually the guy that kind of built on Harry Markowitz's work, simplified it, and turned it into sort of a, something that could be a cogent for index fund theory, as it were, and earned them both a PhD. So I mean, if you talk to Bill Sharp and Harry Markowitz, both of them will say, I would neither of us would have gotten a Nobel Prize without the work of the other one. They work directly. So they were all, and they definitely know Gene Farmer, but they work in different universities. And this is obviously the pre-internet days. So information flowed more slowly and the collaboration was just a little bit trickier. But they definitely knew and inspired each other. Gene Farmer had a teacher at the University of Chicago called Benoit Mandelbrot, who was this really eclectic, nomadic French-American mathematician. And Benoit Mandelbrot happened to have actually known, been intimately familiar with Louis Bacillier's work. So he was the one that introduced Bacillier to Gene Farmer. And Gene Farmer built that into the efficient markets theory. So all these things coming together, all these intellectual stepping stones took us to the promised land, as it were. So we have this background of Laurie's work and looking at tracking. We have these brilliant mathematicians who, once we get to FAMA, now we have this unified idea that having a portfolio makes a lot of sense. Clearly, the stage is set now for the index fund, right? We now have the index fund. The theory was there. Yeah. I mean, so Bill Sharp talked about what he never called it as an index fund. He called it the market portfolio. The idea that the perfect representation, the perfect trade-off of all risk and all return was the market portfolio, the entire market. Now, in practice, he meant everything, like stocks, bonds, real estate, the whole jamboree. But the theory, as you say, it was already there. But, you know, the finance industry, they didn't read economic papers coming out of Chicago and Stanford and, and Harvard. I mean, they were making way too much money in the 60s to care about, like, ivory tower academics. So this didn't really kind of start filtering through, except a few third-tier financial institutions into Wall Street's backwaters, as it were. So, you know, Wells Fargo in San Francisco, American National Bank, so a second-tier bank in Chicago, and this kind of crazy engineering, financial engineering institute in, in, in Boston called Battery March. They thought some of these ideas were pretty cool, and they attended Jim Laurie's regular sessions that kind of disseminated this research, but they none of them were able to actually get buy-in for anybody to actually implement this until the early 70s. It's interesting from where I sit that it is a national pastime here in the United States to talk about how much we hate Wells Fargo, Robin. <laughs> it is a pastime. And you're saying that Wells Fargo is one of the early creators of the index fund. 
I'd say, actually, despite its current public image, that Wells Fargo was for a fairly long period or inspired some of the, the most innovative investment practices the world has ever seen. And a lot of those um, people, by the way, led to really innovation around the index funds, which now really you have to point to dimensional funds, right? You have to point to dim- where, where FAMA is today. Exactly. So, so Wells Fargo is sort of the wellspring where a lot of this came out of both index funds, but also quantitative investing, I'd argue, was, was arguably born there. And it's all because of one guy called John Mac McCrown, who was a frustrated Solomon banker. He was an investment banker, but kind of hated investment banking, even though he liked finance. But he loved computers. He was a computer nerd at a time when you know the word nerd didn't really exist. And he, on the side of his day job, kind of tried to see if stock market prices could be predicted with computers at a big IBM mainframe in New York. Never got anywhere, but the IBM people there thought it was so weird what he was doing. They wanted to show off like all the alternative uses for computers. They thought maybe finance could use computers as well. So they paid for him to give a seminar on the work he was doing over in San Diego. And in the audience happened to be the, the chief executive and chairman of Wells Fargo. And he hired Mac basically on the spot, said, look, we must be able to do better. We must be able to do some stuff with computers that we can't do today. So here is a massive, essentially unlimited budget. Go out, hire people, do cool shit, and come back with what you find. And by the way, the early index funds, you write, low fee from the beginning, very low fee from yeah. the beginning. I mean, high fee compared to today's index fund. But yes, sure. they, they knew that this was never going to be sold as anything other than a cheap, low cost product, even though, you know, statistically, Index funds still beat the most average active managers. Okay. If I've done my job well here, Robin, I've got over half of my audience now yelling at their device because <laughs> there is there is a name that we have not mentioned in this entire thing. There's a name we have not mentioned. And I want to take you back to 1960. There is a paper that's written by a gentleman calling himself, uh, uh, I'm looking for the name, Armstrong was his last name. Uh, tell me about this paper. Well, so a few months earlier, some a California professor, economics professor called uh, Renshaw, had written a paper saying, look, there's so many mutual funds there, it's hard to choose. Maybe somebody should come up with something like the market portfolio, just basically the buyers in high stock market. Basically, the first index fund. This is the first articulation of an index fund, even though it didn't really take it all the way. And this uh, pseudonymous John B. Armstrong just thought that was ridiculous. How dare some ivory tower economists suggest an index fund, because obviously, as the data he had showed, most active managers beat the market. Now, obviously, the twist is that that John B. Armstrong was a pen name for Jack Bogle. He was a senior guy at Wellington then. He was an ardent believer in active management. He was a hotshot of the asset management industry, and he could see this would be a massive threat. So he roundly ridiculed it, albeit under a pen name. He gets so much credit today by investors for being the father of the index fund, right? Your book says that while he's heavily involved, and by the way, and he built a great career on lowering fees and on indexes, along with active management, that uh, he didn't start it. Where was he at during all of the beginning of the index fund? What was he working on? Well, he was a senior executive of Wellington, uh, working as an assistant, senior vice president, the, the heir apparent there. So he was like one of the youngest guys in the industry, complete wonder kind, and, and he took it over eventually, right? But in the 60s, 
Wellington was mostly famous for having balanced conservative funds, and balanced conservative funds weren't sexy in the 60s. So Bogle was given a remit to reinvigorate the company. It was hand of the reins, you do this, and he merged Wellington with one of the hotshot go-go fund managers of the 60s in, in Boston. Now, unfortunately, when the go-go era ended, basically all those funds did abysmally, including Wellington's, and they had a massive falling out between Bogle and his former partners, the Boston partners. Now, unfortunately, Bogle had ceded so much control of Wellington when he did this, when he did the merger, that they were able to gang up and fire him rather than him firing them. Mm-hmm. And he did this kind of Hail Mary sort of corporate gambit, really. I mean, it really was Hail Mary. But in the US, each fund obviously has an independent board. In practice, most funds' independent boards aren't that independent of the actual investment manager. But he was able to go to them after being sacked by Wellington's board. He went to the Wellington fund boards and said, look, you don't have to sack me. You should declare independence. And that was a bridge too far. But essentially what they did was set up an administrative company that would just do all the paperwork for the Wellington funds. And Jack Bogle would be given that job and he'd have the same salary as he did as the CEO of Wellington, which was, I think, $100,000 at the time, quite a lot of money. But it was, you know, this was a consolation prize. This was a thanks, but, you know, you can't stay kind of thing. But he turned that administrative outfit into Vanguard, this eight trillion assets under management company now. You write that he truly was a force of nature. Like he was, it was difficult to be in the room with him. You said he wouldn't back down from an argument. He was very, very uh, charismatic. Hugely. I mean, I definitely think that he should get an enormous amount of the credit for the growth of indexing. And just journey to fee pressures across the board. So how did he change? But how did he change his mind though? So if he's if he's Mr. Active in 1960, where was the big, you know, the light shines down and the heavens open up and he hears the angels sing? <laughs> well, I mean, he he was always fond of of uh, quoting Keynes that when the facts change, I change my mind. I, I think in reality, it was just his his corporate jihad against the partners that fired him at Wellington. So his remit at Vanguard, which was obviously a pretty glamorous name to give a company that was doing paperwork, meant that he couldn't do investment management, but he needed to do something. He wanted to get back at them. And then he happened to read Paul Samuelson, whose textbook he'd read when he was at Princeton, talking about you know these new index funds started by Wells Fargo. Somebody should do this for ordinary investors. And he said, yes, that is something that, first of all, Samuelson wants us to do it, so that's a pretty good endorsement, but also something we could plausibly do because there's no management involved. It's unmanaged. So obviously this is a little bit of artful deceit, but basically he went to the board of the Wellington Funds and Vanguard and said, look, we want to do this. It's cheap. We won't have to do distribution. We'll get some banks to do that for us because they weren't allowed to do distribution either. And it's unmanaged, so it doesn't breach our mandate. And they said, all right, then you go do this. And it was an abysmal failure, of course. Absolute disaster. They went from thinking they could raise $150 million, a decent amount of money at the time. They might raise $11 million. I mean, no ordinary investor wanted to buy that. I mean, it was crazy. So yeah, it was an abysmal failure. It's so interesting. And this is just the icing on the story. You've got so many stories. If you were US-based, 
I would think that part of your promotion would be to create like we have baseball cards here, you know, with all these people and have have the Markowitz baseball card, the Bogle baseball card, the Lori baseball card. Like that would be a brilliant marketing piece for this book because there's there's so many names and so many people and their stories and the way they you weave them in is just phenomenal. The book is called Trillions, How a Band of Wall Street Renegades Invented the Index Fund and Changed Finance Forever. And I'm assuming, Robin, it's available everywhere. I certainly hope so. And if not, then email me and I will literally physically email <laughs> send people copies with a very nice inscription. I forgot to ask you one final question, my friend. What what surprised you most as you were doing this research? Was there something that just caught you completely off guard? It's a great question. Uh, I just love the stories. I mean, I liked, I mean, I, I like finance and I think finance and investing are hugely important things. And sometimes people pretend it's more obscure and recondite than it really should be. And a way to make it understandable is to realize it's about human stories. And, and, and this is a broad, familiar story, but business disruption. Some renegades invent a really disruptive new technology. The industry, the incumbents spit upon them, but eventually they win and they win big. So that was familiar to me. I knew that was the arc, the story arc. But for me, it was just the delightfulness of these people. Right. And, and also many of the pioneers, some have sadly passed away. Some passed away in the middle of my research, but a lot of them were in their late 80s and still active. Like Harry Markowitz is still writing right. actively. Farmer is still teaching. Mac McCrown, who invented the first index fund, is still active investor. He's still a, a board member of Dimensional Fund Advisors. So that was just hugely inspirational, talking to these people, these legends, and and just thinking, look, if I have half their energy and half their intellect at half the age, then I'd be pretty happy. Hey, this is Jen Pilcher, Navy spouse of 23 years. And when I'm not helping military spouses connect in our digital community, I'm stacking Benjamins. Big thanks to Robin for hanging out with us and talking index funds, OG. Jack Bogle speaking against the index fund. Not for it, but against it. Surprise, surprise, surprise. <laughs> it is, it, it, it completely shocked me. And frankly, like Robin said, it truly doesn't matter how we, how we got here. But it is funny how stories evolve and how people think that, uh, you know, one set of things happen and a totally different set actually occurred to get us to the spot where, where we are. And it turns out that like the, the rest of us, Mr. Bogle could get a little angry and uh, thumb his nose or flip a finger at his old employer and say, okay, watch what I'm going to do. I think it's also interesting to hear how his position changed over the years. That's one of the things that's kind of missing right now, I think, in the whole investment philosophy is that you have to recognize that new stuff comes out, you know, new ideas, new uh, solutions, new tools are always being thought up and created. And some of those are salesy. Some of those are, you know, the flash in the pan type thing, but some of it's, some of the stuff actually is legitimate and, and it has taken years to come up with. Well, take even what Doug just talked about saying that, you know, his portfolio of, of Kmart, IBM and JC Penny, not looking as good as it did once, you know, at, at one time, those were decent stocks, right? Today, something totally different. I remember, man, in the 90s when IBM was the go, 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 that that was the company to own. That was the stock to own. Yeah. And so it transitions uh, companies and sectors and industries and and then also the financial products that we use. 
You know, so when when we hear people who are just so just crunched into, well, this book that was written 40 years ago tells me all I need to know. It's like, okay, well, that's 90% of it. But do you think that maybe there's really smart people working on the next, the next thing? You know, yeah. I mean, maybe. Right. And even somebody like the founder of Vanguard changed his opinion over 40 years. You know, what he said there was his original comment was in the 60s, 30 years, I guess, right? Took him until the 80s and 90s to kind of come around full circle. It will change. And by the way, lumping IBM in with JCPenney and, Not quite the same. and Kmart, not the same yet. Uh, IBM, as we recorded this a year ago, training it around 125 dollars a share, now trading it around 142. So, meh, yeah, not horrible, but not phenomenal. Four and a half percent dividend. By the way, what's uh, Kodak doing? Trading at six dollars and seventy one cents at the beginning of the year, or uh, one year ago, it was trading at nine. Oh darn! Swing and a miss. Yeah, there you go. Hey, let's throw out the Avon Lifeline and tackle some of life's biggest challenges. I don't think that's the line, but I'm furiously trying to open the, the the script. How many times? How many times have we done the Haven Lifeline? And I can't even remember what the heck we say. Life's most important questions. That's what I should be saying. Our friends, Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first. Memorizing the stuff we say three times a week. There you go. Yep. <laughs> I could spend time memorizing it, not looking for my life insurance because at Haven Life, their application simple. It's all online. You get this instant coverage decision. If you've ever filled out a life insurance app before and you're going to look differently, you will know immediately how Haven Life is different. Affordable prices, but different than some of the competitors that have online simple applications. They are actually part of a company that's more than 160 years old. So, you know, the coverage has been around these people. It's not their first rodeo. Uh, parent company, Mass Mutual, more than 160 years old. Today, we're going to throw out the lifeline to Jason. Say hi, Jason. Hey, Joe and OG. I have a huge problem that I was hoping you could help me with. I own a small business that has done very well the past few years. Our cash reserve has grown and now contains around $300,000, which is a couple years worth of operating expenses. Because of some accelerated depreciation we got in the first couple years, I'm not able to take the profit as the distribution currently. Our personal financial plan is all on track and we have no major improvements planned. So here's my question. What do we do with the reserves that are above and beyond our emergency fund? Is it reasonable or even possible for the corporation to buy equities or real estate that don't relate to the business itself? Is there a way to protect it from liability as long as it's in the business name? I thought about making a donation to the local Sizzler in Doug's name, but they haven't returned my call. And that right there, Jason, is why the Sizzler has struggled recently. Uh, Jason trying to give him money, be humanitarian and all, and uh, not returning the call. Thanks for that question. Invest money inside the company? Well, sure. I'm curious what he said about, like, I can't take distributions. Uh, I didn't f- really follow that, but um, yeah, I'm wondering if he's got a major expense coming or something down the road because I don't know why he can't take distributions. Yeah, maybe he said because I got depreciation because he's worried about having to pay that uh, recapture back when he sells the equipment, perhaps or something, and and is being cognizant of that, uh, which is a good idea. So the short answer is yeah, you can if you look at the balance sheet of Apple or Berkshire Hathaway. They have all sorts of stocks and investments that they own. Some of them are publicly traded. Some of them are not. You can, your business can own other businesses, right? Your business can own stocks. It can own cash. Your business can have a TD Ameritrade account. Absolutely. As far as liability and that sort of, you know, I don't, 
that's more for an attorney, I suppose. But um, your business is not precluded from investing in other things. So your business can own real estate. Your business can own business. Your business can own itself. You know, you see that. You see stock buybacks. <laughs> Companies are buying their own stock back. I don't know that that's what you want to do. Probably uh, S-Corp. So uh, yeah, you can do whatever you want. I would be I would be interested to kind of follow the thought train on why you can't benefit from this money personally, notwithstanding the fact that it's your business and it's kind of your money anyway. I, I, I get that. But if you have profits left over in the company and you don't take those as distributions, then that profit is going to be taxed, right? So you're taxed on your profit. The good news is that it's only taxed once. So if you put it, if you leave it and you don't take it as a distribution, then that money becomes you know capital that you can withdraw without paying taxes on later. But um, there's so many opportunities from a uh, retirement standpoint, right? You could uh, create a retirement plan for your company, for your employees. You could uh, have a large profit sharing distribution to to the owners and and major shareholders and, and some employees as well. You know, so there's if you're looking at ways to get rid of the money from a tax standpoint, there's lots of places to put it. If you're looking at it because you say, well, I need to keep the money there because I've got a big expense or I'm worried about the tax bill in the future or something like that, and I just feel like I need to keep this money in the account, but I don't want it to be in cash, then you can invest in anything you want to invest in. Do you think that with a business where you don't want it in cash, but you might need this three, five, seven years down the road, is this, is this for you the case for bonds? Because of the fact that you can beat cash, but but you maybe want the money in a place with a less standard deviation so that if you do have a big project that's more likely to happen inside the company than outside the company, then you rip it out of the bonds. Yeah. I mean, anything under five years, uh, for sure, cash or fixed income is a place for that. You know, your favorite Vanguard Ginny May uh, fund Yeah, doesn't really do a whole heck of a lot of anything and all the all the shine is off that thing. It's I think it's down to like a two percent dividend, but but it's better than your savings account at the bank. That's for sure. Well, and that's always been my point of view about the Ginny May. Yeah, is that in my opinion, and this is completely my opinion, the perceived risk of a Ginny May versus a Treasury is not in my brain a real risk. It's not as big. You see of a it risk. being the same the same outcome. I do see it as the same outcome in 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 practical terms, and so instead of getting the anemic, you know, zero point. 3% that you'll get in a savings account. Sure, you're going to have some volatility and there are years when you lost money in a Ginny May, mm-hmm. right? But if yeah. you can withstand a one-year look, if, if, if you look back the last 20 years, uh, there's not a two-year time frame where you lost money two years in a row. So if I'm looking three, four, or five years, that- uh, Looking pretty attractive. Yeah, inflation protected uh, bonds these days are are all the rage, and you know that helps as well. So yeah, anything under five years, you make a pretty strong case for for fixed income and everything above that, you know, on the equity side. I mean, heck, even if you have an undetermined purpose, it's like I have this money, I don't even know what I might be using it for. Then I think you can invest it because if you had a great couple of years, uh, hopefully those years continue and maybe that you know that trajectory that you're on will continue to grow. So you're basically dollar cost averaging into the market, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. It's a pretty good deal. I just pulled up the Vanguard Ginny May. Uh, down half, just over half a percent as we record this, did 3.73% last year, 583 the year before. Uh, lost money in 2013, lost two and a quarter percent. So when we say attractive, uh, like you said earlier, not setting the world on fire, but not in cash. Yeah. Good problem to have, man. Congrats on the business success. 
It is. That is great. Uh, uh, could you help us turn around a podcast? I was going to say, <laughs> well, now what's this business about having money in the bank? <laughs> how, how does how does that operate? Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. And OG and I are happy to tell you what to do with your cash. Very happy. We had all kinds of stuff we held back on too. Yeah, you could uh, make a donation to SB Podcast Foundation. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's it's not a 501c, but it... We, we could put that. We could put that in the disclaimer. Not 501c directly benefits Joe and OG. Yes. Yeah, we go with the direct beneficiary model. Exactly. Turns out I won the scholarship. Stackingbenjamins.com forward slash voicemail gets you to the Haven Lifeline and uh, happy to help you like we helped Jason. And because he was brave and asked us a question, you know what we're going to do? We're going to send uh, Jason a code for some swag. Mom's friend Gertrude sending that out, I'm sure, as we speak. That's going to do it for today. A lot of people to thank, uh, but especially Robin Rigglesworth. And I know Doug's going to do that, but how about that? OG, a bunch of stuff. We've been doing this for a decade and that's a story we've never heard. Half the fun of doing this podcast. Learning new things. Yeah. Discovering stories like that. All right. Last but not least, if you're somebody who needs to think bigger about your goals, dream bigger, maybe outside of just those little goals you've had for a long time. OG and his team taking clients and can help you dream bigger. So head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash OG, and uh, that'll link to his team's calendar. And you can talk to them about how you would interface with them to make better decisions in the rest of 2021 and beyond. That's going to do it for today. All right, Doug, what should we have learned today? Well, Joe, I'll tell everybody what they should have learned. First, take a lesson from our headline, long-term care it's never too early to begin putting your plan in place. Second, take a lesson from Robin Wigglesworth. Regardless of who started the passive investing trend, take a lesson from the experts. The less you interact with your investments, the better they'll perform long-term. But the big lesson? Why don't these trading apps have a way to call them? It's almost as if Robinhood doesn't want to talk to you. It's so weird. Please leave your message after the tone. To learn more about our guests and for more resources, you can head to our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. To learn more about the rise of passive investing, check out Robin Wigglesworth's new book, Trillions, How a Band of Wall Street Renegades Invented the Index Fund and Changed Finance Forever. This show is the property of SB Podcasts, LLC, copyright 2021, and is created by Joe Saul Cihai. Our producer is Karen Rapine. The show is written by Taylor Stevens with help from Joe and Doc G from the Earn and Invest podcast. After you listen, check out our show notes page written by our website manager and blog editor, Brooke Miller. Brooke and Joe also collaborate on a guide to the show and with lots of extras we couldn't include on today's podcast. Heck, they'll also throw in some life money lessons from Joe, and it's all free. It's called The Stacker, and you'll find it at stackingbenjamins.com forward slash stacker. Once we get all of this goodness bottled up, it goes over to our engineer, the amazing Steve Stewart, who helps the rest of our team sound nearly as good as I do right now. Want to talk about the show later? Mom's friend Gertrude is the room mother in our Facebook group, The Basement. She also is our social media coordinator, so say hello when you see us posting online. Here's a weird fact. She and Tina Eichenberg are never in the same room at the same time. 
for a URL that'll take you right to our Facebook group, by the way. Type stackingbenjamins.com forward slash basement. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, reminding you that the Chipotle truck doesn't carry burritos. Lesson learned. I mentioned earlier, OG, that there's a show on Netflix I've been watching and uh, just finished it. It's called The Chair. We're concerned about what's going on in the department. This is already all over social media. This department's hanging on by a thread. Bill's incident is spinning out of control. Oh, there she is. Our first lady chair. Woman, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. We're in dire crisis. I wouldn't be surprised if the president asked for Bill's resignation. Can he stay for dinner? No. No wonder nobody wanted to marry you. Are you too involved? My defending Professor Dobson has nothing to do with my feelings for him, which are entirely platonic and professional. Everybody knows she's in love with him. Isn't that makeup? What? No. It's pretty. Don't you ever think about it? Professor Dobson? I just like him. He's smart and hot. Don't take your jacket off. I don't know how to say this, so I'm just gonna say it. Get together. I like when you act like you're my boss. I am your boss. This has become a serious reputational matter. Oh, God. Sorry, I thought you were naked. You should be running this place. Instead, you run around playing nice. I feel like someone handed me a ticking time bomb because they wanted to make sure a woman was holding him when it explodes. Nobody wants to come out and support you when you're a scandalous figure. Your boy's toast. Tell me what to do. You're going to apologize. I'm so sorry. I... Oh my God, not to me, dumbass. What a uh, uh, what a wild web this series was. It was a short series too. I think it was only six episodes. Uh, the Chair stars a bunch of people that you've seen before. Maybe not front of name people. Of course, there is one. Sandra O oh is the main character, OG. And if you saw Killing Eve, you know exactly who she is. And she now has been put in charge of the English department at a fictional Ivy League college. And the English department spinning out of control, number one. They, you're dealing with so many things. You're dealing with diversity in the department. There is a woman of color who should be uh, getting a lot of accolades and because of a bunch of quote political reasons, she's being set aside, even though her classes are the most popular of all you have ageism. You have three older professors that historically have been the key to the department. And now the head of the university wants them gone, wants what wants them offered severance packages. And of course, you have the first, as as the one older gentleman said, Lady Chair, which is uh, Sandra O's oh's character. 
And those are just a few of the issues, but it's this culture clash of now we're online and before we weren't. And, and the key story, and there's many stories circulating, but the key story is there is a professor. And when you heard them talking about apologizing, here's what he's apologizing for. Something that happens in the first episode, he's talking about the difference between socialism and fascism. And he puts it on the board. And I don't remember what book they're reading, but the book talks about it. And during his discussion of the topic, he makes one gesture, which where he's talking about socialism and he makes a very stereotypical gesture to talk about fascism. Right. And when he makes that, of course, there are students that have cameras on him and they create a meme of him doing that, of him making that gesture over and over and over. And then of course the, the, the head of the university then has to ask the question, is this professor a Nazi? And students begin protesting that weren't there, that we have a Nazi on campus. And by the way, this was a professor that's, that was another one of the most popular professors in the department before that happened. And then he tries to do something that used to work, which is we get together and we talk about it, Right. Which is funny when you talk about Jack Bogle earlier, uh, Jack Bogle changing his mind. He used to be able to have a meeting of the minds. And he said, I'm going to have a town hall meeting. And everybody says, that's a horrible idea. That is a rotten idea. Because of course, he goes to have the town hall meeting. There are angry students there. They don't let him get a thought out before they're putting words in his mouth. And every time he says anything, it immediately gets misconstrued. And so it's the age of social media, the age of kicking old ideas out, the age of people of color being held back for no reason at all. Like you've got every single thing we're dealing with today, all packed in one show and get this, it's funny. And halfway through the series, David Duchovny shows up because he's going to be a visiting professor. Nice. And of course, the one thing that nobody wants, any of these professors want is David Duchovny working with them. They're like, really? So your answer to all these problems we have is to just hire a TV star. And by the way, white guy, TV star, going to solve everything. And David Duchovny plays it up fantastically. I found it incredibly disturbing. I thought it definitely was uh, something that was a, it was a show that was a sign of the times, but you know what I liked about it? It had, and I don't want to spoil it, but it had a dirty ending. And by dirty, I mean, did you see Queen's Gambit? No. My problem with Queen's Gambit was that show had so many issues all the way through it. And they were, they were fantastic issues. We're exploring these, this, this woman and her problem with drugs and her problem with just needing to win and her self-identity being wrapped up in chest. And, and then in the last episode, everything's happy and her, all her ex-boyfriends are there and she's, you know, she's just skipping now and all the problems just magically go away in the last episode. Didn't like that aspect of it. This doesn't try to do that. It ends with things are not okay. And you know what? We're going to keep plowing through it. So did I, did I love it? On one hand, I really liked it. On another hand, it hit way too close to home. So 50, 50. (laughs) I I haven't decided. I haven't decided. I'm glad I saw it. I got a good one that I just started watching. I'm, I'm going to get a couple episodes into it before I review. So I'll let you know next week. I still think about it all the time. The other thing I've been watching is Ted Lasso season two, more brilliance. If you want to watch a show that is 
kind of the salve for all the problems that the chair talks about. And you want to show about togetherness and working together for a common goal and uh, happiness and coming to grips with, uh, with the fact that things aren't okay all the time, but in a, in, in like a happiest way ever, Ted Lasso. I can't wait to hear yours. Let's do that next week. Oh, gee, the show's over and they're still here. I don't know what we do now. What do we do now? This is kind of, this is kind of awkward. Let them eat cake. How about we talk about credit card rewards? Oh, yeah. I mean, all right, sure. You want to do that? Cause awards or rewards? I'm still kind of on this. Uh, uh, I, well, their program is called Cash Rewards at Navy Federal Credit Union. They would save a boatload of money if they just gave awards. You mean like a like our Plutus Award? Like all of yeah. a sudden you get like a, a thing to put on your... A plaque. Yeah. Job well done. <laughs> a 10-year anniversary plaque. Little chashki. Congratulations. You went to Sam's Club today. Nice job. Well, Navy Federal Credit Union has a different idea. Uh, maybe you need to be on the committee because they reward their members for using their credit cards responsibly. You can now earn up to 1.75% cash back on all purchases with a cash rewards card when you sign up for direct deposit. When you use the Navy Federal mobile app, you can redeem your rewards as soon as you earn them. No annual balance transfer or foreign transaction fees, plus rewards never expire. Learn more at, guess where you learn more at? NavyFederal.org. .org. NavyFederal.org, insured by NCUA. Becoming a member at Navy Federal Credit Union can help you earn more and save more. Their certificate options could earn you more than standard savings accounts with competitive rates. Not all financial institutions offer you as many choices for savings options as Navy Federal does. For example, you could start your savings journey with a low minimum deposit, add money at any time, and watch your savings grow. Thanks to flexible terms, you can use Navy Federal savings options for all kinds of goals, short or long term. Considering a big home improvement project, maybe you want to consolidate debt. Well, if you're thinking consolidation, that's part of your plan. You could borrow up to 100% of your home's equity with a fixed rate home equity loan with zero closing cost or easily borrow as you go with a home equity line of credit. What I like, you make your plan first and then you use the appropriate instrument to get you there. And Navy Federal has them. Both options could help make life's big expenses seem more manageable. To learn more, visit NavyFederal.org. At Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA. Equal housing lender. Membership required. Terms and conditions apply. Loan subject to approval.